Hi, this is Agnew, the bass player with Nazareth, and you're listening to the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. Hi, this is Jay Pepper from Tiger Tales, and you're listening to the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. Rock on! Hello, this is Dan Reed, and you are listening to the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. Peace. This is the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast, featuring all your favorite bands from the 70s and 80s. The old stuff, the new stuff, the news, interviews, everything you need for your hard rock and metal fix, right here, right now. Welcome to another installment of the web's favourite classic rock and metal podcast. I'm Ollie Barnes and over the next hour and a half or so I'd like to indulge you in some unashamed celebration of my lifelong passion, 70s and 80s hard rock and heavy metal. For those of you not familiar with what we do here, this monthly-ish show takes three bands from the classic era of hard rock and metal, sits them in a darkened room and asks them all about the old days and then catches up with what they're doing at the moment while giving you some musical reminders of how wonderful they were and indeed still are. This time out we talk to one of the cornerstones of British rock, Pete Agnew from Scottish legends Nazareth who has some harsh words for those of you who take the easy option where there's a band on down the road. You know, as soon as they get to, they get married at 19 or whatever it is they do, you know, well, then they just go to the pub, get pished, uh, they're not going to buy a concert ticket, they're not interested in it anymore, you know. Jay Pepper from Welsh Wild Men Tiger Tales talks frankly about the tragic final days with bandmate Pepsi Tate. I think the worst thing for me, without a doubt, was the last day when we'd been called to see him and to see how ill, you know, bad he was and just felt sort of utterly helpless. That was probably the worst, I have to say. That was just, uh, you, just can, you just can't do anything for him, you know, and somebody suffering that much was, oh, it was awful, absolutely awful. And finally, to complete our multinational lineup, Dan Reed who boasts Filipino, Chippewa, Native American and German heritage, illustrates how his wanderings over the years have made him qualified to tell us how he sees things these days. I've travelled so much and seen so many beauties and so many dark corners of the world, dark drug dens. I've hung out with mafia guys in basement clubs in New York, lived on the streets of New Delhi and seen great poverty, but seeing kids playing with nothing but a steel ring in the street and a stick and the bigger smile on them than the kids that are in the high rises in Manhattan that are got every little Xbox PlayStation game. But before all that, let's kick things off with a classic track, one that in my opinion you just can't hear enough of. The web's favorite classic rock podcast series, giving you all your favorite bands every month. Rejoin the family with the classic rock and metal podcast at classicrockpodcast.com.
Now, Nazareth are nothing short of a British rock institution. Formed in 1968, would you believe, they came to prominence in the early 70s and enjoyed a number of top 20 hits, but it was 1975's Hair of the Dog record that took them into the Premier League. The title track, which many people know as Son of a Bitch because of the chorus, was and still is a regular on rock radio, and their cover of the Everly Brothers' Love Hurts went platinum in the US and was a hit pretty much everywhere else, including the UK. They were obviously big in the 80s and continued throughout the difficult 90s recording and touring with the odd lineup change, but in 1999 lost original drummer Daryl Sweet to a heart attack at the age of 51. His replacement was bassist Pete Agnew's son Lee, and again the band ploughed ahead into the noughties and beyond. Finding the UK and US markets increasingly tough to impress though, they plied their trade in Europe and South America, playing to new and old audiences alike, and in 2008 released The News, their first studio album for almost 10 years. The Big Dogs and Rock and Roll Telephone albums followed until in 2013 their original talismanic singer Dan McCafferty was forced to retire through ill health. A McCafferty-endorsed replacement, Linton Osborne, was recruited and after he departed in 2015, veteran vocalist Carl Sentence, formerly of Persian Risk and others, took the reins. I spoke with bassist and founder member Pete Agnew before a show some time ago, and with nothing to prove and nothing to promote, we just shot the breeze about anything and nothing. I'll play one of the newer tracks at the end of the piece, but before the chat, here's some classic Nazareth to set your teeth jangling.
is a long time in any business. So did anything change in terms of how you approached the Nazareth album in a 21st century type of thing? Well, the, with the guys, for a start. I mean, Jimmy played on the news, obviously, but then Lee wasn't there at that point. Uh, and the two of them played in bands before they joined us, so, you know, they pretty well knew each other right, and their style of playing and things. And uh, the other thing is, over those years, since the new, uh, since Boogaloo, I mean, Jimmy's developed into a completely different kind of guitar player, you know, from what he did then, you know. And... Uh, then Lee, he's a meaty drummer, he always, he always has been. Um, the, 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 I think the news, I think Boogaloo, we liked that, we loved doing that album. But it was, um, it was so long between that and going in to do uh, Boogaloo to the news, you know. Because basically, I mean, record companies are just not interested. You know, and anybody, that, that if you didn't come out with in the last three years and you weren't on the X Factor, you know, they, you know, they, they, you know. So we never ever won a karaoke contest, you know. So uh, we had to depend on ourselves to write songs. And no, no, I mean, I'm being facetious now. I know, yeah, but, but, but you know, I mean, uh, that's how we feel about that kind of thing. Very few bands have stuck together and toured constantly from the start as you have. I guess you must still love it. Aye, I mean, this is what we do, you know, it's our job. And sometimes it just does feel like a job, depends on how you're feeling that day. But um can't imagine doing anything else. The thing is, that luckily we've always had a band where people were kind of friends in the band, you know. Uh, we've had guys leave for different reasons and stuff, and guys been replaced. But generally, it's always been a fairly happy band, you know. And uh, I think that that helps to to keep going. You know, the longer it goes on, the less you think about it. You, you just think this is this is natural. We used to. I remember when we were we went full time, as they call it, on the first of July. In 1971, I think it was, to, to before we recorded the first album. And, and the next year, in July the 1st, 72, we said, well, fancy giving it another year. And we went, oh, you know, 73, same thing, 1st of July, fancy giving it another year. So are there, still, are there still places that you're going to for the first time now? I mean, we're talking about Brazil. That was never somewhere that bands went a lot in the, no. in the, in the day. No, but we, I mean, we've... The band has always been hugely popular there, and we only we only really started going there just in the, in the beginning of the 90s, because there was not so many bands toured there. You would go down and do one gig in Rio or something. It was like a risky that. business there. Yeah, I think it still is, <laughs> you know, but, um, but now they actually have bands touring there, like they have in Germany and like anywhere else, you know. And uh, it's a big, big market, if I can use that horrible word, uh, for, for, for us. And for, and for live music generally, you know. And uh, what's good about Brazil is we, we've been out there so many times, but every time we go, we'll play another, you know, four or five cities that we've never been to. But they're huge, but you've never heard of them. You know, we, I mean, everybody's only ever heard of Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro here, you know. But there's, there's places over there that you wouldn't believe. You, you can hardly say the word, but they've got two million people. 
You know, it's like playing in Birmingham. You know, you know that, that yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's a bit like Canada and America. You could just tour that and nothing else. Like like most American bands do. They never come to Europe. They just tour there. You know. But I think well, let them have it. I'd rather tour in Europe anyway. <laughs> so who's coming to see Nazareth? Who's coming to see Nazareth? Is there some? There's a lot of young faces at the front, or is it all gets like me nursing a pint at the back? No, I mean in, in the UK. Yeah. And and here that tend to be. Uh, you get a few, yeah, you get a few younger people. I think they heard their dads or their granddad's records, I don't know, and you get them. But generally it's a bit of an older crowd. But when we play in Brazil, well, I mean, I see the average age there is in the low 20s, you know, and they're, they're there from their 14 to their 30 years old kind of thing. And the same in, we play in Russia, same kind of deal. And in Europe, it's a mixture. Out in Europe, you know, in Germany and stuff, it's a mixture. You've got a lot of young people and you've got a lot of... You see, but they're all concert goers in all these countries. I'm sorry to have to say this, but the UK are not a concert going uh, country. You know, as soon as they get to, they get married at 19 or whatever it is they do, you know, well, then they just go to the pub, get pished. Uh, they're not going to buy a concert ticket. They're not interested in it anymore, you know. It's it's not a big touring country for bands like us, you know, for, for, for bands like myself. I mean, I talk to Jurahi, Purple, or, or, or mates of ours, you know, and they're going, well, yeah, I like to play there, but, you know, uh, if you want to get to some newer people, you need to be playing in other countries. That's the way it is. The set list for a band with a 22 albums is always going to contain a large number of the must-play classics, and 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 some and for some bands this is this can be a problem. You know, I mean, do you still do you still look forward to tearing into Razamanaz and Love Hurts and, and as much as the fans like them? Well, we try and kind of mock them about each night, you know, and um, no play exactly the same. But yeah, it's pretty. I mean, you get used to. It. The thing is, it's not so much the fact that we're playing the same song as we. You've got what you've always got to remember. We may be playing the same songs, but you're playing it to different people every night. So, and if you played it last night and you thought, ah, well, I didn't, we don't play that great tonight, but we'll play it great tomorrow. I said, well, yeah, there's 2,000 people here didn't hear it that great. That's what you've got to always remember, you know. So you've always got to remember it's a different, different set of people that you're playing to every night, and that makes you raise the game, I think, you know. I'm not saying we get fed up with the songs. We switch them around anyway, you know, like uh, when we're doing a set list, as you say, you know, there's, if we're doing 18 songs, 12 of them are spoken for, uh, if you're playing Britain. Then when we go to Germany, that's a different ones. But we get different hits in different countries. We go to Brazil, it's different. We go to Canada, it's different. So this is our uh, UK set that we play here tonight. Yeah, yeah. So you, you you drop that one, you put that one in. But the only new ones you're doing is off the last couple of albums, really. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, you lost the original drummer Daryl Sweet in 1999. Suddenly, it was a heart, a heart attack. He'd been a founder member, and he was also in the Shadets. So somebody you'd worked with. Uh, he was with me. Yeah. 40 years or something. I mean, how was? How did you get over that? Well, I, uh, well, you know, it's uh, you see so many times in bands these days. You know, uh, 
I've got an address book which got crosses through an awful lot of names, you know. Um, that's the way that we're all getting older. Um, Daryl was, uh, it was a shock, and it wasn't, his whole family had uh, congenital heart disease, you know, so he was always kind of worried about that anyway. But I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a bad thing. But um, I mean, the band was not ready to to pack in, you know. Uh, well, I, I can't. Well, if, if you put, you can't put importance on different people. But I'm afraid myself as a bass player and drummers and guitar players, I hate to say this, but we're easily replaced. You know, uh, who would know? And let, you know, who would know? You know, and uh, but. Obviously, without Daryl, then Lee took over. So uh, that uh, you know, that must have given you a great deal of pleasure. A lot of people, I guess, when bands tour for a number of years, you know, you can not see the kids as much as people that work from home. So you're kind of getting it back at the other end, I suppose. Uh, well, the thing is, we did with Lee. I mean, Daryl Lee was actually one of Daryl's favourite drummers. I mean, he used to he, he used to go and see Lee playing because he thought he was just great, you know. And the two of them were good friends, well, Lee knew him since he was born, you know. And he used to come out, Lee used to come out and, uh, when he wasn't playing himself, you know, maybe maybe he'd have a, you know, in a sticky period and the bands are broken up he's playing in, he would come out as Daryl's drum tech, you know, and he used to come out and set all the kelp and do the other stuff and play percussion, you know, at the side of the stage, like, we've always got a couple of guys do that. And so Lee did all that and he knew the numbers outside down and he knew the band and he knew everybody so he was an obvious choice you know you know and it actually has got Lee's got a lot to do with actually running the band now you know I mean he t he took a lot of weight off my shoulders you know and uh, he's a very good organizer um yeah I mean there's a lot of that about I mean because um for example, I mean the Van Halen. I think I did read somewhere the only reason they were touring now was because Eddie wanted to do it with with his son Wolfie on the bass. That's the only reason they're doing it. Uh -huh. So it's, it's, it's a, well, I mean it's uh, well, I could easily put a band together because there's, there's me, there's Lee, there's Stevie. Who's, uh, I've got five sons. They're all musicians. Uh, Stevie's a guitar player, singer, great singer. Right, right? Chris, who's a bass player, and I couldn't even lace his boots. I mean, this guy is phenomenal, you know? I mean, I couldn't play with the guy. He's that good. So I wouldn't even get the job as the bass player. I'd maybe have to go in rhythm guitar. I've got Stuart plays piano. It's actually quite good when we have a, you know, at Christmas time and things like that. <laughs> in our house, you know, we don't need a band, you know. Everybody's there, you know. And uh, it was so funny when uh, Chris got married, and the, the pr prospective father-in-law says to me, he said, uh, "So who's the band today?" And I went, Are "You kidding me?" He said, "There was there was 88 guests, and 42 of them were musicians, and the best musicians in Scotland." I said, "You have no worries about the band." And even the people at the hotel went, that's the best wedding I've ever been at. <laughs> Every guy got up, he was better than the last guy, you know. <laughs> it's quite good to have that. <laughs> I can imagine. Now listen, a lot of, I mean, for a band that's been around, uh, you know, any length of time, I mean, certainly a lot of bands are going to look at Nazareth and say they like them as a band or they're influenced by them. But what was all this about being asked to play Axl Rose's wedding? He's been a huge fan of Dan forever. And when we used to play in uh, California, 
was Guns N' Roses. Before they recorded their big album, they, we did six shows there. They came to every show, you know, and they were right at the front of the stage, you know. And uh, anyway, one they made it really huge. Well, we did Love Hurts. And he got married to, well, that was written for the Everly Brothers. Right. You know? And Phil Everly's daughter, that's who he got married to. So he asked Dan, he said, it would be great if you could come and sing Love Hurts at the wedding. Because we, Dan couldn't do it. I mean, because we were touring, you know. And he said, well, I'd, I'd love to come and do it. And, like, no. and, and in a joke, you know, Dan said, and it's been quoted so many times at this, but he did say, he did say, well, it's probably just as well I didn't, he said, because the song would have lasted longer than the marriage. And I think the marriage lasted about three weeks. <laughs> and knowing actually I could understand that. <laughs> 23 albums and counting for Nazareth, and although you might not like all of them, it's a fine body of work, whatever the future holds. The final album to feature original vocalist Dan McCafferty was 2014's Rock and Roll Telephone, so I'll give you side one, track one from that, the very Gillen-esque Boom Bang Bang.
Tiger Tales first burst onto the scene in 1987 with their Young and Crazy album and the follow-up Berserk in 1990 helped make them one of the few non-US bands to truly compete with the sleazy glam superstars that ruled the Sunset Strip at that time. Musically and image-wise, they were almost indistinguishable from the likes of Motley Crue, Poison, LA Guns and all that lot. No mean feat for a bunch of lads from Cardiff and credit is certainly due for this alone. However, they weren't from the US, nor did they immerse themselves in the LA scene, so they they never broke that market, and even if they had, as we all know, the hairspray metal scene was short-lived for all but the most resilient of bands. 1995 saw them call it a day, along with so many others, but 2005 saw them back with the classic lineup and a number of successful shows across Europe playing alongside many of the old guard. New music followed, and even the death of founder member, the colourful and charismatic Pepsi Tate from Cancer in 2007, couldn't derail them. They've continued touring and recording, and 2016 sees the release of the album Blast, which in truth could have been recorded in the 80s, such as the homage paid to that area, which was undoubtedly Tiger Tales' most blessed period. I spoke with guitarist and founder member Jay Pepper recently, but before that, here's a reminder of what they used to sound like. start, Tiger Tales was kind of painted as the UK's answer to sleaze and the, the glam rock that was coming out of LA, but I was surprised to learn quite recently that, that the band at the time was kind of more influenced by Metallica and Sabbath and so on, so how come you went in that direction musically? I guess most people identify with the first album, so that would be obviously myself, Pepsi, um, Stevie and Ace, um, and I was from that, very much that classic rock kind of uh, background, you know, ACDC, uh, Zeppelin, Sabbath. But Pepsi was more, well, Frank Zappa and that kind of stuff, you know, the tubes. Um, he loved all of that, but he also liked Van Halen. So he kind of turned me on to them. But then we had the band with Stevie in it, and um, he'd spent some time in the States and saw Poison at the time before uh, they were even signed. And, you know, he was a big influence to that. So uh, he brought that back with him, and it kind of morphed really, you know, the, the image between the two. But the influences musically were, were quite diverse. Do you think that because you were, the, the image was very much glam, do you, and, and the music, you know, certainly early on, it had that, that feel to it, do you think you'd have been more successful if you actually were American or if you'd been over there at the time? Oh, I think without a doubt. I mean, that we went completely over the top for that first Kerrang! interview, and it was... It was one of those moments when you're in a band and something changes drastically. We were on tour at the time with Tokyo Blade and certainly there was nobody there to see us at the time. Um, and then literally that came out and I think a few days later we played the marquee. And it was one of those moments when you walked out and you were expecting you know, that sort of just sort of response that we, we had every other night. And suddenly it was like literally opened the door and it was like just everyone screaming, going crazy. And, and that turned... That, there was a definite turn from that moment on and you suddenly thought, oh, hang on, we're on to something here. Like a lot of things, when you do something in a, in a magazine or musically or whatever, it's what people latch on to and people latched on to that image and 
instantly everybody wants to talk to you. You've got something interesting because it was a dire scene at the time, I have to yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask about the mood of the style of music that, that you guys always played. Bands like Steel Panther are selling, well, Steel Panther specifically, are selling out arenas with their sort of tongue in cheek style, which it's like the, the 80s vibe, but totally to the max. And a lot of their fans think that it's it's a new thing, but really that's the way it always was. And, and it's I think it's very much the British way that we've, we've got to be able to laugh at ourselves a little bit, don't we? Oh, without a doubt. You know, it's we're, we're the, the masters of producing, you know, those novelty records over the years. And, uh, and yet, when it comes to this genre of music, oh no, you know, why would I go and watch something like that? I'm far too cool for that. And yet some American comes over and, and, and does it, you know, dresses exactly the way, plays the same songs in the same ludicrous manner. Because it is funny. You've got to be able to laugh yourself. How can you not do this and have your tongue, not have your tongue planted firmly in your cheek? You know, Van Halen summed it up. And, uh, but I think a lot of the American bands completely believe it. You know, they, they don't see the funny. So whereas me and the boy, as we call Pepsi, and the rest of us always have, you, you know, yeah, you, you love it, you enjoy the music, but Jesus, isn't it funny? So it, the, the, the irony that a band who are taking the piss out of the whole scene, as you say, can be so huge, what does that say about the British people? I mean, what does it say about the fans in general, that you can bad the real thing, and but that's not cool, you know? I, what is that? I, 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 I don't know. Perhaps taking that to the max then, talk to me about your Eurovision exploits. Was that a real stab at that whole thing? Well, it came about, a mate of mine, he's, his good friend got selected last year, that couple, I forget what they were called now, but and he was telling me about it. And literally a few weeks later, I don't know what we were, we were in the studio or something, and uh, I either read on the BBC or something, it was going to be an O this year, because the BBC looked ter terrible, you know, they were absolutely brought to task for, you know, I don't know, five years on the trot, coming by the last or one but last, they couldn't get it more wrong, you know. And I just read this thing on the BBC and they were making this big play about, oh, this year was going to be an open forum, they were going to artists, you know, open submission, anyone. And it was like, well, there you go. And everyone was saying, for God's sake, bring back the Song for Europe type format, where you just let the British people vote for it. So we did it, and to cut a long story short, the submission process, the whole thing was a complete farce, a complete joke. I mean, for something that's so absolutely huge, um, there was about five lines on the BBC website that, you know, the, where you'd think it'd be full terms and conditions about all that. It was all very sketchy. And the uploading of your song or video was literally like a little tiny drop box. It was pathetic. And we were talking, the BBC owning some of the biggest competitions in the world. And um, yeah, we you know, didn't hear anything. A couple of weeks later, you know, heard back, thanks, no thanks. And then we hear all these people suddenly started contacting us once it was announced who not got in. And there was one or two particularly influential people who were like uh, Eurovision Radio or something, and they said, you never stood a chance, you never listened to it, they, you know, they wouldn't have listened to it because they've already selected five of the songs right. and artists. Two of them, didn't even, they didn't even have artists for. He said, they're running around now trying to look for 19-year-old kids to fill those slots for those songs. So you just knew, again, it was all the Cowles and the Louis Walshes and the usual arseholes behind the scenes, and the BBC didn't have the backbone to ever take a chance on it. They're utterly full of shit, and I've never known a business like it to be so utterly corrupt as this, this business is. Let's shoot forward then. The, the, the latest record is Blast. I got it through a while ago, thank you for that. 
for me, it, it just could have been completely plucked from the mid '80s, uh, and in terms of style, which is absolutely fine by me. Um, was it a conscious decision to get back to that sound? Well, that Eurovision thing uh, sort of shaped it. We were—I mean, we were really into it. It was only the second song we were doing at the time when that happened. Um, but with Rob taking on the lead vocal side and his more melodic kind of take, you know, voice and the way he sings, suddenly it was like, well. This would be much better, you know, uh, uh, kind of, you know, to, to do that anyway, because it kind of almost like second nature to us anyway. Um, whereas the band had, we'd been quite hard sounding over the, you know, the more recent years, if you like. And so, um, yeah, and Rob, you know, we started writing the songs, and it, it just turned out that way. And I think it's, it was a really good way to go. It sounds, as you say, that's what we do, if you know what I mean. That is what we do best. So stick to your strengths. And I know it sounds obvious, but a lot of bands that take, you know, tours they go down cul-de-sacs and I know you try new things because you get bored as a musician and it's like we're no different so you, you don't necessarily write 20 and 12 but you always take detours down and you know and just try, try different things which is what we've done but this is back to that kind of big bombastic hooky choruses you know big guitar riffs and I think it sounds great I, I put the album on I thought it sounded absolutely fabulous you know as you say it could have been straight out of 1990 is what it sounds like but I mean if you wanted to to hammer it home if you wanted to hang your hag as hang your flag as a to the mass as a British glamour you couldn't do much more than cover a song by mud you know dynamite that Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman uh, it did so much with sweet and Susie Quattro the funny thing is it fits right in with all the other songs on the record Exactly that. that. That came about because we were coming back from somewhere and we better just put on CDs and um, like the mud, the greatest hits was there and we were, you know it's like stick that on and I heard that track and I just thought what a fantastic track that is you know but then you listen to all those Chinny Chapman stuff and it I mean how great with their songwriting it all hits on it as you say it fits right in and there so we did it and it works something that I uh, met somebody mentioned the other day seemed quite obvious but the outpouring of sort of sleaze and glam bands from markets like Sweden in the last few years do you think that's kind of reopened the door for you um, well, it's definitely helped. I mean, what was really nice when some of those bands, the newer bands we've played with, a lot of those guys in Hardcore Superstar and Crash Diet, you know, cite us as influence to those guys, you know, the hardcore yeah. guys, and we used to skateboard your songs, this kind of thing. You know, it was really cool, so, because uh, we love them, you know, but they're much harder bands, but love all this kind of genre of music, so, uh, yeah, it helps. Now, obviously, your old mate and original member, Pepsi Tate, d died in 2007. Uh, obviously, that had an effect on the band, but what was it like for you personally, because obviously you've known him a long time? Um, well, yeah, obviously heartbreaking. Um, you, you think even when you know someone's really ill, we all knew he was really ill even before he was diagnosed. We, we couldn't quite believe 
you know, because we're all older guys, everyone's got experience of, of losing people in, in that horrible way um, to cancer. And um, we all knew there was something badly wrong with him. We just couldn't believe it was taking the doctors that long to join the dots, as it were. Um, but it did, it took a long time, it took about a year. And I mean, he was a big guy, you know, six foot plus and, and, a, and a, a, a hefty guy. And he'd lost so much weight. I mean, it was so obvious there was something drastically wrong with him. Um, so once he got diagnosed and from that moment on, when you know someone's, you, even though you know they're gonna die, it's an awful thing to say. Um, when they actually do die, and we went through the whole process of them start to finish, you know, and uh, when they actually do go, my God, you, you, the world falls out. You think you were prepared for it, but I, I wasn't, and I just went to complete pieces on the day that it happened. And even though you think you, 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 you know what's coming, but it still doesn't prepare you for it, for that moment. So, yeah, it was horrendous. Did it make you think... You know, because obviously, I think a lot of bands when they start out, you know, as, as a musician, you, you've got to have that sort of feeling of I'm immortal and we're going to go and take the audience. Did it make you stop and think a bit? Well, it's been so many times over the years. I remember him, you know, when we were young. Um, every girl wanted to be with him. Everybody wanted him to. He was just, you know, like a kind of really beautiful guy. You know what I mean? And people just love what he looked like. They love what he had to say. They loved his intellect. He was, and so many times you kind of want to be that person you know and then suddenly you see them just kind of decimated in front of you and and all that, those things the amount of times you kind of i wouldn't say wish to be them but you know you, you you just you can't quite believe that somebody so full of life and just like he was can turn to just nothing in in, in a fairly short space of time so I don't know, it just, you know, like all these things, whether it's band members, family, it just, just is those moments where it puts it all in perspective for you. And for me, like the band and the reason we keep going is it, it's a, not just testament to him, but it's more about it, it documents the whole thing. It documents his life, our lives, and it's, it's like a timeline. It's a very documented timeline, and it's something, if you, while you're here, do something, whatever it is, you know what I mean? Do something, do your shit, do it, whatever it is, and you know, rather than do nothing. And uh, so it's just, you know, live your life and it just you keep, just reinforces those moments. But I, I think the worst thing for me, without a doubt, was the, the last day, day when we'd been called to see him and to see how ill, you know, bad he was and just felt so utterly helpless. That was probably the worst, I have to say. That was just, uh, you, just can, you just can't do anything for him, you know, and somebody suffering that much was, oh, it was awful, absolutely awful. Uh, way back in 87, Pepsi had famously said that if he had unlimited funds, he'd buy you a nose job. Buy me a nose job? Yeah. I Do you remember himself? No, uh, well, well, I think he said, I think that's what he said. Did he, well, obviously the question was, did he ever do that? But how did it get wonky in the first place? Well, I had my nose punched in. I sort of lost the side of it. But I think he I think always that's what he was talking about. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. But I think he was always on about having a nose job himself. I mean, <laughs> I'd have had a lot of things done, but it probably were not necessarily my nose at the time. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. Sort of one of the things he'd say. He was probably drunk at the time. I suppose. <laughs> From Blast, if you were going to pick one for the fans who haven't seen you for a while and said, "There you go, that's that's us now." Which one do you think it would be? Oh gosh, um, lots of well, all the girls. I think all the girls in the world yeah. is. To, track Robert which is really great um, there's so many tracks on that album I think that one's probably you know we're doing a couple of videos and that'll be one just for one night's another one the opening track which we open live with as well um, either of those two are terrific tunes you know so uh, yeah I mean take your take your pick
My thanks to Jay for his recollections there, very emotional stuff, and our thoughts are with anyone who's been through a similar experience. Of the two tracks Jay mentioned, and in memory of Pepsi Tate, I've gone for the very familiar sounding, All the Girls in the World.
The Dan Reed Network started in 1984 but arrived properly on the scene in 87 with their debut album produced by Bruce Fairbairn, who just struck gold having been at the helm for both Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet and Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation. Dan Reed's band had enough elements for the marketing geniuses to lump them in with the aforementioned, and although they were musically very different, being much more of a funk rock band, they were given a berth on the hair metal gravy train. This never sat well with either the band or the courted fanbase, as the Dan Reed network consisted of a multiracial lineup who wrote funky rock songs with pop hooks, so they neither looked nor sounded like the all-American boys next door, which meant that the record companies didn't know how to promote them and the media didn't know how to pigeonhole them, a recipe for disaster. Their second album, Slam, in 1989, was produced by Niall Rogers of Chic and contained even more of the band's differing styles. Even so, they were sent out on tour with Bon Jovi, Def Leppard and the Rolling Stones where they were received extremely well. 1991 saw the Heat album released and although a huge success in the UK, the record label seemed to have given up trying to sell the band to the record buying public in the US and the arrival of grunge meant they didn't need to bother. After that, it all seemed to fall apart with Reed taking an extended hiatus which involved a lengthy stint with drug addiction and that was that. He pulled himself out of the mire though and while turning to more spiritual stimulation he began writing songs again and released a number of solo records to considerable acclaim. 2012 saw a reunion with the Dan Reed Network that resulted in a number of live appearances and in 2016 a new album fittingly entitled Fight Another Day and I'll play something from that after the chat. I spoke to the man a while back and regarding this interview you'll notice a slightly haphazard series of questions and this is because Dan Reed is one of the most engaging and interesting people I've ever met. He has a monk-like appearance which appears totally at peace with his surroundings and before I could refer to my question sheet we were talking about a range of topics, some of them extremely deep. So we jump about a bit and the hour I spent with him was one I'm very grateful for but the edit to get it down to a podcast acceptable length was not easy. Before I give you the results of that though here's a reminder of what they sounded like in 1989 from the Slam record. This is Tiger in a Dress.
Bruce Fairbairn. Mm. He'd just done Slippery When Wet, I think. He'd done Permanent Vacation. He'd done the Loverboy album. Were you worried that that was going to steer you? Because Bon Jovi, uh, and they had a very particular image that I I think the company, the record companies were probably really happy with and was selling. Were you concerned that that with being with him was going to steer you in that way? Uh, No, not in the sense of, I mean, I think in the initial conversation about him producing, I was concerned about it. But after meeting him, I wasn't. Um, He really... Plus, I was a big fan of the first Loverboy record, which he produced. I was a big fan of the Permanent Vacation record. I felt like that was the first album in many years where it sounded like Aerosmith again to me. I thought that he did a great job of resurrecting their sound and bringing them back to their center. And so when I had heard that record, I was like, man, it would be an honor to try to work with this, this man who's got a wide... Uh, breadth of knowledge about music. He was a trumpet player back in Prism, I think was the name of the fusion band from Canada. I can't remember the fusion band he played with. So I had a lot of respect for him. And he was also a family man and he had kids and he would go, you know, we'd take breaks in the middle of the afternoon while we were recording and he would go teach soccer and he would come back and Mike Fraser and I would like play him something that we were working on while he was at soccer practice with his kids. And I just felt he was very humble and very kind man. So uh, I enjoyed every moment working with him on both albums. The other question I was going to ask, I suppose leading on from that, was that certainly our perception over here, Bon Jovi were the first band Hmm. to hit the the charts here Hmm. with that style of music. Aerosmith, and that was Hmm. another... It, at Whitesnake in 87. It then became this machine, and what what was our style of music then became everybody's, which which changed it. Our perception, or certainly my perception of of Dan Reed Network, Hmm. was that you were being very closely linked with that whole export from the States. And it's funny because I never heard a huge amount of of the Dan Reed stuff at that time, which is odd because it was all being promoted in a similar kind of way over here. Um, Were you aware of that? And was it similar in the States or...? Yeah, very aware of it because we were signed by the same gentleman that signed Bon Jovi. So I remember... uh, Derek Shulman taking me to the first Bon Jovi concert. They were, I think it was Slippery When Wet tour. Um, they were playing in New Jersey, which is their home turf. And we went in there and we were standing kind of in the back of the, of the arena and watching this. And he leaned over to me and he asked me and he said, are you ready for this? Is this what you want in your life? Do you, do you see yourself up there doing that? And I said, yeah, I, I don't see myself doing that same style of music even though we're still you know, kind of all with the long hair and have a similar vibe. But uh, I definitely would welcome the, the honor of being up there and being able to play for this many people. And it was just a year later, or a year and a half later, we were touring with Bon Jovi all over Europe. Uh, and I, I really felt like part of what we were talking about earlier, I felt like part of our, our band, the Danry Network, was in that 80s processed, marketed uh, grave. And then when the grunge scene started breaking in 1990, and we had this new album coming out, which was The Heat, um, which wasn't grunge at all. It was very hopeful and you know optimistic lyrics, salt of joy, and all these things about trying to be at peace with the world and, and, and uh, condemn war and things like this. Whereas the grunge scene, and some of these guys were friends of ours, you know, Alice in Chains and... What became Pearl Jam, Mother Love Bone, was uh, was really close with uh, Andrew, who was the lead singer of Mother Love Bone. Um, they were we were contemporaries. They used to come to our shows before they got their deals, and we used to go to watch them play before we got our deal. And and seeing them break and and change the face of music, where it was like still funky, 
remember I said the funk rock thing they were very funky these bands um, but they were coming from this very dark space and I don't know if it was that culture the heroin culture that was going on in Seattle at the time or just the fact that it rains all the time up in the Northwest and they were just kind of <laughs> coming singing from that depression <laughs> of looking for the sunlight um, but you could see you know with Kurt uh, committing suicide uh, Lane Staley eventually passing away Andrew passing away from heroin um, there was a lot of angst and and, uh, and conflict that these beautiful artists were dealing with and we weren't coming from that spot and so I felt like when the grunge scene came it was really time for us the idealistic hopeful uh, or or fluff you know bands bands that were looked at as kind of just hair bands uh, where it's time for us to go away and take a break and let this new wave come in and change the face of music which it did and I think we're now back to where music is kind of both dark and both light you know what you were saying then it's very surprising to me because listening to the music of the first that the, you know those first two albums certainly it didn't, didn't sound anything like the Bon Jovi and Aerosmith mm. stuff it may have been funky and a different but it, but it mm. didn't and I would never have put you guys in the same building as the grunge guys so mm. it just shows what marketing yeah can do you know <laughs> And then in the midst of that, I destroyed our image completely by shaving my hair, you know, shaving all my hair off in the midst of them trying to market us as kind of this, you know, uh, 80s hair rock band. Um, and then the grunge scene was coming out where these guys were wearing lumberjack shirts and their hair was not even, they didn't look like they hadn't showered for a week. And they were just coming out going, ah, fuck the world, you know. And I was sitting there, whoa, here I am in the middle of trying to <laughs> embrace the, the words of Gandhi and try to put it into songs. And the world isn't really in that zone right now. I don't know if we're up, we'll ever get into that zone. But I got to say that's a big inspiration to me later on. And he was killed way too early. I mean, he died way too early in his life and should have never been shot was John Lennon. Here was a guy that came from the biggest pop band you could possibly imagine, where they all used to wear the same suits on stage and they'd sing the lightest song. I want to hold your hand. I mean, it doesn't get any more light than that, right? And came from there into their hippie phase and then into the like leaving the band phase into getting up there with your wife and her like screeching in the background and you just like kind of you know and supporting her fully and and believing in anti-war songs and and finally coming out with this beautiful music about woman working class hero the list goes on with songs that he was coming out with that just made you go wow here's a, a true true artist that was a sinful man if you want to say sinful, he broke hearts along the way, including his wife's heart, and yet she forgave him. Um, he made penance. He wasn't, uh, from what I hear, wasn't the best father to his first son. But then the second son came around, he realized, like, maybe I wasn't a good dad the first time around, and learned from his mistakes and learned that you need to traverse into the dark to be able to even reach for the light. If you just only reach for the light, then you're, you can become a hypocrite really fast. Uh, I think even Gandhi it wouldn't have been himself. Uh, if it wasn't for all of the prejudice he experienced while in South Africa as a young attorney. So we all have to go through that. And I think that that's why I respect it and, and still do to this day the whole grunge scene because all of those guys really, they weren't crucified, but they were. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It has been very fashionable for musicians to 
speak their mind about the, the politics of the situation. It mm. would be perhaps interesting because you have a, a more interesting heritage and upbringing than a lot of people. So it might give people a good, a better idea if you could run through your heritage. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a half Filipino. I'm a quarter Chippewa, Native American, and a quarter German. So uh, I think that right off the bat ingrained in me this sense of being more a citizen of the world as opposed to an American or European or uh, any kind of patriotism. I've never really had this patriotism bug, you know, of putting up flags and, and, and worshipping uh, a form of thinking or thinking that my country is better than your country. Uh, I've traveled so much in these last... 30 years, 25 years, and seen so many beauties and so many dark corners of the world, you know, big dark drug dens. I've hung out with uh, mafia guys in basement clubs in New York till six in the morning. I've lived on the streets of Delhi and seen great poverty, but seeing kids playing with nothing but a steel ring in the street and a stick and the bigger smile on them than the kids that are in the high rises in Manhattan that are got every little you know, Xbox, PlayStation game. And so you can't really say that one way of living is better than another. I, it's, it's really about finding that balance is let technology be a pathway for us to find our connection back to nature as opposed to the other way around, ignoring nature and, and the animal kingdom at the expense of us going faster and faster in the world seems like just uh, insanity. You played back then with UB4. 40, Run DMC and The Stones, in an era when bands had a probably very fixed audience, young white males, young white females, you must have then had a much more cosmopolitan group of people. Was that by design or were you aware of it? It must have looked and sounded very different from the stage outwards. I, I always thought that it would be fascinating to have an audience that was racially mixed. And once again, it stems back to this trying to, you know, conquer prejudice in the world. Um, I think I was half full of shit in the sense that I was way too idealistic thinking about, you know, saving the world. When you're young, you think maybe you can go out there and help save the world. Um, but that was the impetus behind it. it was just definitely trying to have the audience racially mixed, them all dancing together. I used to dream about, you know, parents being with their children, like age mixed as well. Um, and so I always composed songs with that kind of in the back of my head about having this that kind of mixed audience. So when we opened up for Run DMC, I was in, the, in my mind thinking, okay, we're going to go up there and they're going to really just love the funk of this music. But we had long hair and ripped jeans on. We weren't that, that image of what rap music was then, you know, or at least uh, hip-hop or what you would call it then. So we weren't that well uh, liked at all by opening up for Run DMC. We opened up for UB40. This is a reggae audience. We're not playing reggae. You know, I thought that... And granted, there was people that in the audience that enjoyed it, but it wasn't like we got encores on any of those shows. The only time we got people that were really, it was like the rock audience got us pretty well. Um, there was a couple Rolling Stone shows that were off the hook for us. Um, but overall, we, I think we baffled people more than anything. I think they didn't really understand like this multiracial band singing about, you know, uh, one minute we're singing about shaking your booty and get funky, and the next minute we're singing about trying to, you know, solve the world's problems. And they were looked at us as kind of like, they didn't really get us. And I know radio didn't really get it, it is, as well. So they didn't really know how to pigeonhole us and put us in these categories. So uh, I don't know if that was 
our downfall or whether it was a blessing in disguise because the longevity of the music has kind of proven that people haven't forgot us or forgotten that music and they've actually opened their mind to listening to my solo material and I've had a career and a second life so to speak because of it so I, I really don't know uh, <laughs> how to explain what happened with all of that but it was definitely a, a joy playing with all of those different bands uh, and a great honor of course playing in front of this great talents and playing for their audiences I think on this show we've talked a lot about death of the industry yeah. not on purpose but because this you know yeah. could we be bold enough to say that actually given time <laughs> it's for the better in the in, we're not looking at thousands of artists earning millions of dollars yeah. we're looking at millions of artists earning thousands of dollars which means that yeah it's called reality i mean we were all living in a bubble back then i remember you know, record companies sending stretch limos out to like take us to interviews or to some party, some club after our shows and all of those recoupable or recoupable expenses. We were staying in nice hotels. Um, we had photo shoots that we were spending $10,000 on doing a photo shoot. Music videos were $100,000 a pop, $150,000 a pop. Now we're, I'm spending, you know, $1,500, you know, 1,500 pounds on a, on a video, maybe 2,000 max. So... It's, it's reality. It's what we should have been getting paid all those years ago. <laughs> and it's what we are getting paid now. And, and what really separates the, the, the categories now is whether you can perform live, I think. You can have your superstar artists like Beyonce and stuff like that, where there's still a machine there and they're playing for 20,000, 30,000 people. Or you can have like the majority of us musicians that are out there playing for smaller audiences, making an okay living. Um, entertaining smaller crowds but it's just so fun and now I'm even doing this last two years I've been doing a lot of house concerts and that's that's been the most blessed thing that's happened in my life is to be able to um, go to people's homes play for 40 50 60 people they're all they all know each other you get to share meals with them you get to have conversations nothing you would do is sitting in a dressing room waiting to go on stage playing the show and then going backstage and then not even get having any kind of contact with the people that are actually supporting your livelihood. So that's taking music back to its rawest form before there was ever a music business because you used to have a piano or a harpsichord in your house and an artist would come over and play for the family. <laughs> and so now we're taking it even back, not only with Pledge Music, but taking it back to performance-wise uh, to have the opportunity to have this as kind of a side element that is as important, if not more so, than playing clubs is, is a blessing. And I've had, I've had a couple of people come up to me and say, God, I'm really sorry to see your career as, you know, you opened for the Rolling Stones and now you're doing house concerts. They look at it as like this what? negative. And I'm saying, you have no idea. You should come to a house concert and see how bad I am off, you know, yeah. <laughs> how like unlucky I am. It's just the exact opposite of that. Talking about the Dan Reed Network specifically, there was a reunion. How did that come about and how was it? <laughs> it was much, first off, it was a, a great healing for all of us because, you know, when the band split up, it wasn't really ever etched in stone that we weren't coming back. Uh, it was kind of me taking a hiatus and I left the guys hanging and some of them uh, didn't take that well and rightfully so. I created a, a, a much damage in the wake of those decisions that I made and not making them clear decisions. So... Uh, with Brian James, for example, the guitarist, we hadn't really had a heart-to-heart -heart friendship talk for 20 years. So this is the first time we got together. It was on New Year's Eve for the first rehearsal for the event. And 
I, I got to say, we, we said hi, gave each other a hug, and we went into the rehearsal space and started playing. And the moment we started playing, that all of the past kind of just disappeared and erased. And we started smiling at each other and rocking. And we played the event. And then after you know New Year's Eve, midnight struck, we had an after party. And Brian and I are sitting up at the after party alone in the corner behind the bar. And we just gave each other a real hug and said, you know what, I missed you and I missed you and I love you. Uh, I miss your friendship. And we both explained that to each other. Dan Reed, a very sorted guy indeed. It's always a thrill for me to speak to any of the artists I used to queue up and see back in the day, of course, but sometimes I get way more than I bargained for. Talking to Bill Ward from Black Sabbath and Michael Sweet from Striper were both very intimate and ultimately cathartic conversations for me, and being in a room with Dan Reed is another high point. So let's get more up to date, and the first single from the Dan Reed Network's 2016 Fight Another Day record, out through the Frontiers label, this is Divided.
that's all from me for now. Thank you, as always, for listening. And a reminder that all the classic rock and metal podcast shows, including the Next Generation and Archive series, are available on iTunes, Podomatic, and, of course, on our main website at classicrockpodcast.com. I'll leave you then with a great track from one of the recently reissued Budgie albums through UMC. This from the 1974 In For The Kill record. Here's a crash course in brain surgery. Until next time we meet, be good. (laughs) 